0: Malaysia Day brings countless reasons to celebrate, unity, heritage,
1: togetherness. This year, Mercedes-Benz gives you another reason, the Malaysia Day promotion. Own the Mercedes-Benz of your dreams today with our Malaysia Day promotion, now with tailor-made packages and more. The Mercedes-Benz Malaysia Day promotion, amazing deals going fast. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station.
0: BFM 89.9, the business station. On the past few shows, MSP's Matt Armitage has brought up the topic of his potato chip consumption. For the sake of, well, all humanity, it's time to stage an intervention as MSP delves once again into the thorny topic of food. Now, I've been warned that at any time we let you talk about food, you gross people out with talk of lab-grown meat.
1: Hey, Richard. Well... There's an element of truth to that, but only in as much as other people find it gross, because I don't. uh, The idea of meat growing in labs to me is less weird than the idea of raising animals and killing them. That's really bizarre, you know, especially when you consider the industrial scale that we produce meat on. But I'm not going to digress into that first. We can bring that up later in the show, uh, just before time for people to eat, I guess. Uh, But, uh, you know, 2020 for a whole raft of reasons, has really changed our relationship with food.
0: Like the Dalgona coffee craze.
1: Well, you know, certainly being locked at home has rekindled a lot of people's interest in food. So we've seen a lot of food trends emerging via social media this year. Uh, Dalgona coffee obviously is one, but we've seen a lot of bread making, a lot of baking. Uh, We've seen a lot of healing foods. I have no idea what that means, but you know, the internet. Uh, but what's also been interesting has been looking at the predictions for food trends in 2020, most of which were made, of course, pre-pandemic at the end of last year. And one of the big food trends that was predicted for the uh, UK was supposed to be uh, food halls, upmarket versions of, you know, the the food courts that we find across Asia. But you can't actually imagine anything being further from The actual reality of what's happened in 2020.
0: But it's largely been a year for healthy eating.
1: Well, you mentioned crisps in the the intro potato chips. Uh, So I don't think we can really say that. And Dalgona coffee is uh, maybe something that you don't want to be drinking or eating every day. Uh, Certainly, I think in the earlier part of the year, we were seeing the Netflix and chill effect. So high calorie comfort foods, a lot of couches, Uh, restricted access to exercise, to the point where, as uh, we commented on the show a few weeks ago, the UK government is considering increasing access to gastric surgery solutions to tackle obesity coming from the coronavirus pandemic. Uh,
0: And there's a coronavirus aspect of it?
1: Well, from the reports I've read, which relate to the UK, but I guess are relevant to many other countries as well. Improving the overall health of the population, whether through diet, lifestyle, or medical intervention, is thought to improve the way many people respond to the virus. We've seen that people with underlying health conditions, whether it's high blood pressure, diabetes, they're all more at risk from this virus. So overall, uh, it reduces pressure on health systems that are already stressed by the pandemic.
0: So, healthier diets have been uh, a focus of 2020.
1: Well, we live in a world, or we used to live in a world that was, you know, very fast. Uh, We considered it to be high pressure. And a lot of us, treated food in the same way that we lived the rest of our lives. We would eat out a lot. We'd eat a lot of uh, convenience food. Not that that makes it inherently unhealthy, but we give away a lot of control in that we're always eating from a menu and we have little influence over what's actually going into the food or how it's prepared. What has been an interesting side effect uh, for the pandemic, uh, of the pandemic rather, at least for those lucky enough to be able to afford choices, has been, I think, the ability to take back control of their diet. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean healthy. You know, you can easily make something at home that outstrips the calories in the most outrageous of fast food joints.
0: But it's enabled people to choose
1: Well, yeah, you know, that simple experience of choosing what you eat, the quality and the quantity of the ingredients. And of course, when you eat, another hallmark of the way we used to live was, you know, snatching food in between meetings, eating late meals. So our approach and attitude to food, I think, has altered quite radically this year.
0: Have we seen an acceleration of demand for items like uh, plant-based meat replacements?
1: Oh, uh, definitely. I mean, plant-based foods, um, essentially these kind of meat replacement, mock meat, uh, that kind of thing, which can be, uh, Often pea protein based they can be soy based there are all, all manner of options. Uh, jackfruit is one a local example that 's being used in uh, some kind of mock meat burgers so uh, plant based foods we were expecting to see an increase in demand for them this year in any case because that 's building on increases that we 've seen uh, over the last few years. but that demand has exceeded a lot of people 's expectations so Nielsen predicts these plant-based, mostly burger alternatives, uh, should be worth around four billion uh, US dollars worldwide this year. I mean, that's a lot of money but it's still tiny when you look at the the size or the value of the overall global food market so in the u.s alone each person spends an average of uh, almost a thousand u.s dollars on meat per year so you're talking about tens of billions of dollars just in the united states so that four billion dollars is still a tiny percentage of uh, our overall food consumption
0: so have meat industries uh, been affected by the shutdown
1: Oh yeah, of course. Um global meat consumption in 2020 is likely to be well down on 2019 partly because we're not eating out so much. So all those cafes and bars and restaurants That have been closed for months. Uh, In some states and countries, they still are closed. That's had a huge impact on the demand and supply chains. But plant based meats have seen their demand increasing throughout the year. Uh, Brands like Beyond Burger, Impossible Food, and the Meatless Farm Company are all on their way to becoming household names. And obviously, 2020 has seen a surge in demand uh, for uh, the raw ingredients of uh, all of our meals as we're cooking more from home
0: but but not always for the right reasons
1: well True. Um, Meatless Farm Company uh, uh, has just gotten into some trouble over an ad campaign in the UK where uh, it made use of the company's initials as though they were a rather crude exclamation declaring how good the uh, the company's burgers are, uh, similar to the kind of uh, trouble the FC UK clothing brand got into with a campaign in uh, uh, the early part of the millennium. But the interesting part uh, about that is that uh, it was actually part of uh, a one and a half million Pound ad campaign. Now that's the kind of spending you expect from mainstream brands, not from upstart niche foods. So it represents a lot of business confidence in the sector. And that's also evident from the, uh, the rise in the variety of plant-based ready meals that these companies now offer. So they're moving away from these uh, kind of burger and uh, mince type products that initially they brought to market. And now they're creating more of the kind of bolognese type dishes and all manner of other uh, ready meals.
0: Thing is, are are we seeing the uh, the prices starting to come down? Because they're not the cheapest.
1: Well, no. I mean, we are seeing meat alternatives uh, being marketed now at prices that compete with meat. Uh, I think most of them are still slightly higher. But as demand surges, we will probably see uh, at least production prices decrease. How much of that gets passed on to consumers, of course, is anyone's guess. But uh, obviously, in Malaysia, we're paying imported prices for a lot of these products, so they don't appear to be a direct equivalent as yet. Uh, But according to reports in the uh, New York Times and some other US publications, people have been attracted to the products as genuine alternatives. Uh, Supplies of beef burgers have at times been interrupted due to COVID outbreaks at meat processing plants, which has closed those plants down. Uh, and a food processing plant may turn out to be, if uh, not the root cause, then uh, an amplifier of Auckland's current COVID outbreak.
0: So they're not just being seen as, as healthier food, but also as uh, potentially less likely to carry a, a virus risk.
1: Well, at least anecdotally in the media, there seems to have been some incidents of people viewing these products as belonging to a safer part of the food chain, uh, especially as, uh, you know, as of uh, earlier in the pandemic, companies like Impossible and Beyond were claiming that none of their workers had contracted the the virus. Now, that may have changed, but I haven't been able to find any direct information that uh, suggests any virus transmission in their production facilities. But it's interesting, Uh, again, this is anecdotal from media reports, certainly at least some of those that have tried the products, they've done it for that secondary reason. They haven't chosen them because they want to eat uh, uh, less meat. They've chosen them for this safer reason, and they're opting to continue buying them. So they're finding the taste is close enough to meat that they've been won over to these products.
0: Interesting. Are we seeing similar trends across Asia?
1: Sure. I mean, obviously, there's a, a, a long history of vegetarianism. There's a, a long history of things like mock meats in Asian cultures. Uh, I think a, a piece in the Nikkei mentioned that the market was worth around $15 billion uh, across the region, which is much larger than the, the, the $4 billion that we were talking about just for these kind of burger replacements. Uh, a lot of the products are being made from soybean rather than the high-tech biochemistry of the likes of uh, Impossible Burgers. Uh, Hong Kong's Green Monday uh, saw a 120% rise in demand for one of its meat replacement brands. Uh, just from January to April this year. In China, brands like Starbucks, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut and KFC have added Beyond Meat-sourced alternatives to their menu- uh, menus since the start of the pandemic. Uh, Mos burger's uh, outlets in Japan, Taiwan and Singapore have added a mushroom-sourced uh, alternative meat burger, again, Uh, since the start of the pandemic Uh, and my wife really likes the just egg which is a plant-based egg alternative
0: so to be clear the demand hasn't been created by the pandemic
1: no i mentioned earlier i mean we've seen strong growth in the sector since uh 2015 at the very least uh, a lot of people have had concerns about the amount of meat they eat or the way that meat is produced the pandemic seems to have accelerated those concerns it also helps that technology and the products themselves have improved in terms of uh, their comparability to meat and it's not just the giant conglomerates getting into the industry We're seeing a lot of biotech startups emerging worldwide. So uh, we mentioned uh, Green Monday in Hong Kong. Uh, In Thailand, a startup called Thai Food Tech launched a a plant-based meat alternative called More Meat at the start of the year. Now, they are uh, selling very small quantities, but the demand for the product has been roughly five times uh, greater than the company had anticipated at launch. So I think we can certainly say that this is a food technology that has truly arrived.
0: All right. Mock meat from Mock Human. Uh, When we come back, Matt puts his lab coat to explore the hidden science of our food. You're listening to MSP here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station.
1: funk mixtapes bfm 89.9 the business station
0: BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You're tuned in to MSP here on BFM. I'm Rich Bradbury. Of course, I have uh, Matt from culturepop.com on the line. Matt, uh, you're no stranger to uh, laboratory experimentation, shall we say?
1: Um, No, I'm like the reverse Spider-Man or uh, a kind of uh, Banner-Hulk hybrid uh, without the intelligence or strength.
0: But I know you're itching to get to the lab-grown meat part, right?
1: Yeah. So, uh, this I think we covered on one of the, uh, the, the, last Geek Squawks shows I did with, uh, Jeff. Now, a lot of cultured cell meat where you take actual cells from an animal and then create edible meat by culturing those cells and replicating those cells in a lab. Um, KFC recently announced a partnership with a Russian based biotech company called 3D Bioprinting Solutions to create lab-made chicken nuggets from a mixture of animal cells and textured plant materials. And as the name suggests, the nuggets will be 3D bioprinted.
0: Sounds extremely unnatural.
1: Well, some chicken nuggets have been subject to legal proceedings in the past concerning uh, whether or not they are truly an animal product and uh, whether they are natural. But um, I think a lot of our inbuilt horror comes from the idea that these foods are created from a chemistry kit. Yet KFC claims that the bioprinted nuggets will be cleaner and more ethical than uh, traditional meat-based nuggets, and their production won't harm animals, and it won't require the chemical additives that are a feature of many current fast food products.
0: When are we likely to see these uh, strange nugget creatures?
1: I think the two companies are hoping to get them finalised uh, by kind of September, October time. They mentioned uh, the the fall. Um- One report I read suggested they might be trialled in some Moscow KFC outlets before the end of the year, uh, but I'm not sure if that's the case. But I'm interested, would you try them?
0: Yeah, I I, I don't see why not. Uh, Particularly if I could choose what they were shaped like as well, I think that could be quite interesting. You know, you could send out uh, things for Valentine's Day or for Christmas or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, of course.
1: I think they're unlikely to be bioprinted in front of you at, at... this point, but yeah, yeah. I mean, if you wanted like a twenty, a twenty meter tall chicken nugget, um, that would be a, a pretty good option. Um, and yeah, but I mean, I I agree with you. I think I'd be perfectly happy to give them a go. Uh, all the science seems to point to meat production having a major impact on the planet uh, and our, our use of resources. So if we can reduce that impact safely and in ways that are nutritionally equivalent, or perhaps even better, then. I certainly have no problems with that.
0: So so that brings us to a bigger question of whether these products are actually uh, better for the environment. Uh,
1: yeah, for sure. Now, I mean, firstly, before we get to that, we have a presentation issue, I think, largely related to terminology. Uh, we happily fermented products, but cultured does sound a little bit scary. Uh, other terms like tissue engineered uh, are just plain terrifying nobody wants a, a tissue engineered nugget um you know i'm i'm pretty open minded but i think uh, we need cuddlier words so uh the idea of uh this clean meat being lab grown i think is still something that hasn't cemented in people's minds i'm not a fan of the term clean meat to be honest i think it's a term that adds More confusion rather than clarity. Uh, But it's not actually, as you were saying, a done deal that lab grown meat will benefit the environment.
0: This is the uh, 2019 study by Oxford University.
1: Uh, Yes. So, on the one hand, we have the potential gains from uh, reduced land use to raise animals. And of course, hopefully um, put a halt on the deforestation that has been linked to the cattle industry then there are the associated benefits from not having those animals so less food diverted to feed them uh, obviously then you have things like the use of chemical fertilizers that are used to create that animal feed uh, the housing and transportation of the animals and of course the emissions uh, mostly methane that they emit however you know despite all those gains the study concluded that it may even be possible that lab grown meat will end up being worse for the environment
0: uh because the labs are energy intensive
1: well yeah so using contemporary energy and power generation methods the carbon dioxide emissions from the labs could potentially be more damaging than the methane emissions from the animals they're replacing so while methane is a potent uh, and uh, a global warming gas it actually spends less time in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide i I, I think methane uh, has a, a, a not a half-life but whatever they call it for gases of about twelve years uh, So that could actually lead to a greater increase in CO2 accumulation over the long term. Now, there are caveats on this. Uh, A piece I read on Vox makes the point that the study assumes that we won't make significant energy gains in terms of power generation over the next 1,000 years, which is quite incredible. Um, Then there's the issue that a lot of current production is relatively small scale, and it's still highly experimental. Uh, And as well, the, you know, the secretive nature of many biotech firms means that there's not actually a huge amount of published data on how much energy it actually takes to create these kind of lab cultured meats. So we don't really know at this point what global mass production might look like and what kind of efficiency gains are are possible in the the medium to long term.
0: So all that land uh, that's freed up, is that going to be used sustainably?
1: Well, of course, you know, these are all the interesting what-ifs. Ideally, you'd want to see a large proportion of that land being converted to uses that reduce emissions and benefit the environment in general. So whether that's uh, pasture land, whether that's rewilding, you don't want to create sterile environments that are devoid of animals and vegetation. You don't want to convert it all into urban or commercial land. Uh, And, you know, for the purposes of a lot of media content, including shows like these, we often have to edit for space. And that can create situations that seem more concrete or black and white than they actually are in reality.
0: So really, we're at the point of exploring the potential of these new food uh, supply systems.
1: Well, very much so. And not just these, but other new and alternative technologies uh things like insect proteins so however you look at it i think we're going to need the buy-ins of the big multinational food producers uh not only because of their appetite and their their deep pockets when it comes to research and development, but also their expertise in production. So farm to table has been a growing trend over the last uh, decade or more. But I'm not sure how that model plays out when you're talking about the large scale laboratory conditions required for clean meat. to to be made, or the kind of heavy processing that's needed to make uh, the the current kinds of plant-based meat substitutes. So we present these as being uh, very technical, chemistry-based solutions to food. But it also ignores a more simple truth, uh, I think, that we know surprisingly little about the chemistry of the foods that we currently eat.
0: Are we talking about the, uh, in terms of additives and and preservatives?
1: No, I mean, that's the assumption that a lot of people make, but we're talking about the uh, structure of the food itself. So uh, I read this amazingly interesting piece in The New Scientist called Hidden Nutrition by Graham Lawton. Uh, Lawton, rather, It points out that when we uh, read the ingredients on food, uh, we get a list of the chemical additives, the flavourings, the colorings, the preservatives, the emulsifiers, the stabilisers. But you'll also just get the names of other foods, sugar, wheat, carrot, beef, we take it as red that we know what those foods are. But it could be that as much as 99% of those foods, in terms of the compounds and the micronutrients uh, they contain, could actually be unknown to us.
0: Uh, And this is what they're calling nutritional dark matter.
1: Yeah. So, you know, physicists accept that the uh, bulk of the universe is made up of dark matter, uh, material that we are as yet unable to find. The dark matter in food is slightly different. It's not that we can't identify it. It's just that for the most part, we haven't actually bothered.
0: So what kind of implications does this have?
1: Well, according to Harvard Medical School professor and physicist uh, Albert Laszlo uh, Barabashi, uh, who coined the term nutritional dark matter, we've been dumbing down our knowledge and expectations of the uh, health impacts and interactions of our food. Now, uh, our foods, of course, are a complex mix of macro and micronutrients, uh, minerals, fats, proteins, vitamins, and all kinds of biochemicals. Even the way we cook those foods, the effect of temperature or the influence of external cooking additives like oil or garlic can create new compounds that may interact with the body in new ways. So not only is Professor Babarashi looking at food in new ways, his research applies the principles of big data to help us understand these foods better.
0: It's a bit of a bonus week for you, isn't it? Uh, Two of your favourite things, big data and 3D printing, combined with your third favourite,
1: crisps. Well I'm not going to deny it um, and and don't forget the the lab grown foods as well so uh, today is a very rich and sustaining stew for me um, but let's go back to the example of garlic which I mentioned earlier uh, the usda the u s Department of Agriculture keeps a national nutrient database which uh, lists the nutrients in thousands of foods uh, for uh, garlic, it lists 67 compounds. In fact, the entire database lists around 200 different micro and macronutrients that are found in our foods. But around 10 years ago, a group of researchers looking uh, or were looking to create a more comprehensive list of the, uh, the compounds and the foods that they're found in. So what they started was essentially a, a Wikipedia of food. It's a publicly accessible database called uh, FoodDB. Uh, I guess it's kind of the IMDB of food. And that now numbers more than 70,000 compounds. So to give you the example, uh, on FoodDB, garlic contains 2,306 different compounds. That's an enormous difference from the 67 that are listed by the USDA.
0: Now, let's get down to, let's be realistic. What about crisps?
1: Well I was very disappointed to find out that crisps are not actually listed as a food type Um, so I I did the next best thing potatoes. Um, Potatoes contain almost 4,500 different compounds and that makes crisps to my mind a very elegant and complex choice. Uh,
0: Presumably uh, many of those compounds are in uh, tiny concentrations.
1: Absolutely. Um, the classical nutritional thinking is that we know pretty much all we need to know about the nutrients in our food and that those trace elements are in such tiny concentrations as to have virtually no impact on our health. However, Babarashi points out that some vitamins like vitamin E are usually only present in micrograms, yet their absence from our diet has significant health effects.
0: Does this explain why uh, thinking on foods changes so often?
1: Well, yeah, you know, one week we hear fats are bad, the next week we hear uh, fats are good. So, you know, Babarashi makes the point that we may be missing the bigger picture. For example, it's thought that beta carotene can help to protect against heart disease, yet studies where beta carotene is added to the diet haven't shown benefits. So he comments that perhaps it's because beta-carotene doesn't occur on its own in plants. Over 400 different molecules are always present where you find beta-carotene. So our narrow focus may be causing us to miss the truly active molecule, which may be hidden amongst those other 400.
0: Is it also assuming then that all foods and their compounds affect people in the same way?
1: Well, yeah, you know, we're discovering a lot more about our gut flora, literally month by month, and those flora vary enormously from person to person. And it's those bacteria that break down and process the compounds in the food. So it's very likely that we will respond differently and even create different compounds from person to person as those biochemicals react with one another. Uh, one of the parallels that the article makes is with DNA. So before we sequenced the entire human genome, 98% of uh, the, the, the DNA data was written off as being junk. Yet we discovered that more than two thirds of the sequences linked to disease were actually contained in that junk 98 percent so something similar may turn out to be true of food uh, perhaps not on the same scale but it seems odd to write off 99 percent of the constituents of our food as being irrelevant especially as this dark matter is something we can detect and chart and study if only we bother to try
0: fascinating stuff matt thanks very much for that this of course was msp for transcripts of this show Where can they head to, Matt?
1: Uh, You can head over to culturepop.com. And of course, you can find me on uh, any of my Instagram feeds uh, at culturepop and at uh, at culturemat. Uh, There'll be more information there as well.
0: You have been listening to MSP here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station.